0: Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. On this show, we regularly dissect and address the deep and systemic nature of racism in this country. And given this moment of protest and reckoning, we want to keep diving deeper into this issue. Keep trying to understand the roots of inequality in this nation and the forces and institutions that perpetuate it. It is pervasive and extends way beyond policing. Yesterday, we talked with Heather Ann Thompson about the need for significant criminal justice reform. And today, we want to look at how racism is baked into America's economic policy. And we want to talk about a dynamic that not everyone necessarily appreciates the racism that bludgeons black and brown people's lives every day here in America, it also takes a toll on non-black and brown people. It hurts all of us. Today, we're gonna spend the hour talking with someone who has been studying this issue for years and has a lot to say about the history of racial prejudice, public policy, and our economic well-being. Heather McGee is an American political commentator a political strategist and is currently a distinguished senior fellow and former president of Demos, a nonprofit progressive US think tank. Heather, welcome to Detroit today. Stephen, thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm very excited that you are with us today. So I want to start with your thoughts on the connection between this moment of protests calling for an acknowledgement and end to police brutality and systemic racism. And COVID 19, do you think the way the pandemic resulted in an economic pause allowed for deeper social issues to have their moment?
1: I think it's such a good and important question for us to ask. How did we get to a place where something that, you know, as Americans, we had seen on video time and time again, the unjustifiable killing of an unarmed black person? Um, suddenly ignited now three straight weeks of sustained protests everywhere from Tuscaloosa to Salt Lake City in places and counties that are 95% white and places and counties that are 95% black and everywhere in between, including all over the world, tens of thousands of people in Berlin and Paris and New Zealand and Australia. And I do believe that the coronavirus uh, pandemic experience had a lot to do with it. And I think it revealed for us in a very, very profound and unavoidable way a few things. One, you know, Americans like to think that we are all rugged individuals and that we are put on this earth to achieve our own dreams. And, you know, society sort of exists somewhere out there. But suddenly, everybody had to do virtually the same thing, which was Stop. Think about the way we live. Change the way we live. Sacrifice um, our livelihoods, our freedom of movement, um, our sanity from children running around our house all day in order to protect not just ourselves and our families, but our entire community and our nation. And we saw the same disease strike um, virtually every country on the globe. And so we felt something that we don't always feel as humans in America, particularly, which is interconnectedness. And we also felt very physically vulnerable. And I think in that moment of experiencing the physical vulnerability, the fear of losing your life and losing your loved ones, and then when it was revealed how much this was disproportionately being uh, experienced uh, in terms of the coronavirus infection and deaths, by people who are already so vulnerable, whether it's senior citizens, the elderly, low-income people, and then overwhelmingly black and brown people. I think the inequality of our society would lay bare. So the interconnectedness, the vulnerability, and then the inequality. Mm. And then yeah, to watch ahead. eight minutes of 46 seconds of someone being slowly killed with no no thought to their life. It just ignited a fire, and I think we were primed to stand up for one another, to feel connected, to want to protect life in that moment.
0: And, and talk about what that says about the role of capitalism and maintaining the status quo here in, in America. I think there is something about our economic system that is also being revealed in this moment.
1: So profoundly, Stephen. I mean, you know, I have um, experienced lots of different uh, positions in the class hierarchy in my life. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, um, and then I went away to a very fancy boarding school and have gone to fancy schools and have always lived in, uh, you know, majority black neighborhoods and integrating neighborhoods. And, you know, I, I, I can hold lots of positions, as so many black people can. You know, I can make myself comfortable in a bunch of different rooms. Um, but I've never experienced... A situation where people i knew from my family to my work to to the broader field that i work in in economic policy were experiencing the pandemic in such different ways if you had the luxury of being able to work from home and not have your income interrupted you know it was a time of baking banana bread mm-hmm. you know and being driven crazy by your kids but you know not feeling an economic crunch necessarily if you were in a job where you were not allowed to work from home, which is four out of five black workers, then you were suddenly uh, shoved onto unemployment. And then if you were the third rung, which is the, uh, I call the sacrificial workers, who were the essential workers, but so many of them, the majority of whom work for companies that don't treat them like they're essential, that treat them like they're sacrificial, that don't even provide them health care and living wages and hazard pay and sick days and protective equipment because our government hasn't acted to pass the Essential Workers' Bill of Rights, which seems absolutely um, uh, criminal to me that that mm-hmm. has not yet happened. Um, and so it was very clear, suddenly, that as half of Americans lost their pay or lost their jobs, we the threadbareness of the social safety net and how little we ask of employers. We don't ask them to pay living wages. We don't ask them to treat workers with respect. We don't ask them to offer health care insurance. And so suddenly we really have laid bare how vulnerable our people are mm. to um, the power of, of companies uh, to just treat them as disposable.
0: And I'm really intrigued by the language of this time and, and this moment. And one of the words that just keeps coming up over and over is reckoning, that this is mm. finally a reckoning with uh, the history and, and uh, entrenched nature of, of inequality and racism in this, in this country. But I, but I also really want to push hard on that word – To define what that means, Uh, we have seen moments before in American history where it seemed we were finally going to come to terms with the consequences of our history and and the institutions that perpetuate Uh that history. What does it mean to reckon with those things in a way that puts us on a different trajectory so that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're not again saying, well, we're ready to reckon. Um, It it does seem like that word suggests change in a way that I'm not sure everybody understands uh, what it means right now.
1: That's right. I think that um, we have to remember that in other moments of great momentum for the long movement for equality in this country, um, we've always had an organized opposition that wants to maintain the current status quo of the concentration of wealth and power um, along the lines of race and gender and class. And the question is, you can pretty much map America's history. How strong is that opposition? How entrenched are they in the decision-making bodies of our country? And then how successful are they at selling their story to the vast majority of white people who are not in that inner circle of uh, mostly white men who have such outsized wealth and power in our country. And that, those, I think you can, in many ways, tell the story of progress uh, by answering those questions. And so right now, we actually have, because of the success of movement building of grassroots organizations and people who become activists Uh, to save their own lives and the lives of their communities all under the banner of Black Lives Matter, but so much more. Um, movements work. They change consciousness. They call people into action. They make people make choices. And right now, you are seeing the idea that Black Lives Matter and the movement of Black Lives Matter be more popular than it's ever been, more popular than the civil rights movement was at its heyday, Mm. um, even among white people. That is a huge breakthrough. And that's why people are calling it a reckoning. That's why you're starting to see the symbols fall, because We finally, I think, realized at a majoritarian level that this country continues to deny in a way that other countries that have had atrocities like our atrocities of slavery and genocide and discrimination have not denied. We have been continuing to deny their ongoing power and presence of those symbols, of those stories, of those belief systems whether it's Aunt Jemima or Confederate monuments to people who betrayed their country in order to defend chattel slavery, we, the fact that we could still have one of our most popular sports you know, emblazoned with the Confederate flag, yeah. even for people who don't even live in the former Confederacy, just shows we, we have not reckoned. But here's the question, Stephen. Are we going to shift the rules of power? And that's where you have to ask those questions about the opposition. And right now, the Republican Party is more right wing than almost all the conservative parties on the planet, save an Austrian far right party. That's basically a Nazi party. And that's based on an ideological study that was done very recently. And and you have to just recognize that. You know, the Republican Party of today is not George Romney's Republican Party. You know, it's not your father's Republican Party. It is a party that is organized racially, that is what holds it together is a politics of white grievance that fuels the ability to transfer wealth upwards into the hands of a small, small elite of white, particularly white men. And it's not serving the majority of white people, even though it has the majority of white folks. And so that's the case that I've been trying to make over the past number of years that there are costs, real economic, as well as spiritual moral, but economic costs to racism, not just to people of color, but to white folks as well. This mm-hmm. is a game that is not serving them ultimately. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Heather McGee, an American political commentator, political strategist, and currently a distinguished senior fellow and former president. Of Demos, a nonprofit progressive US think tank. We're talking uh, about the cost that everyone pays in this society because of the systemic racism and inequality that are baked into economic and social and political policy here in the United States. We're talking about how this moment in our country, uh, the massive demonstrations that we're seeing, all of the expanded narrative and rhetoric around the causes and consequences of systemic racism, and finally, uh, a realization that we can't keep going on the way we have since the country was founded. Profound realizations seem to be taking place in lots of different communities about what the nature of that change needs to be. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you think about the connection between racism and social policy and this moment that we're experiencing right now. What is the tone of race relations in your own community? How is racism playing out in your life? And what are your ideas for how to change it. Also give us a call and tell us if you think this really is a moment of reckoning in this country. Is this a turning point where we get to the place where most people realize that things are not fair, that there is an incredible history and foundation for racism and inequality in this country, and that it must change? Uh, Or do you think that this is a moment uh, that sort of echoes other moments in American history where it seemed that we would go in a different direction, but we didn't quite get there. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll try to work Those comments into uh, our conversation. Before we get to listeners, Heather, I want to talk about your recent TED Talk, which uh, Mm. now has over 1 million views, which is pretty impressive. Um, (laughs) Uh, In it, you referenced this moment from 2016 when you were on C-SPAN and a man named Gary called in. You have since said that this conversation was a real turning point in the way that you approach your work. So I first want to to have our listeners hear what Gary said uh, on C-SPAN, and then have you talk about how you reacted to that moment and how it has informed your thinking. Let's listen to what Gary said. I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. Mm. And the reason
1: it is, it's something I wasn't taught, but it's kind of something that I learned. I have these different fears, and I don't want my fears to come you know, so I try to avoid that, and I and I come off as being prejudiced, but I just have fears. I don't like to be forced to like people. I like to be led to like people
2: through example, and what can I do to change, you know, to be a better American?
0: That's a really powerful admission that Gary mm. called C-SPAN to make, that, that he does have these feelings? He also ties those feelings to fear, which I thought was a really self-aware uh, admission that that it is driven by fear. But then he wraps up the call and says, "Help me! Tell me! Tell me how I can change." I mean, uh, right there, I think he he kind of represents the entire arc of uh, of white existence, really, in 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 America. Uh, first, tell me what you told him about what he, he could do, but but then tell me how that conversation has informed your thinking since then.
1: So that was a live... It was, it was on television, but it was like this show, it was Live mm-hmm. Caller. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was on there to talk about what I normally talk about. Um, certainly at that time when I was president of a, a think tank that was addressing economic inequality, I was talking about taxes and jobs, you know, and here comes this guy who just sort of in some ways, I think, just saw me, a black woman, on TV and heard something in my voice and thought he'd give it a try. Um, And so, of course, it got me completely off guard. You know, on live television, how do you respond? But the way he ended his question by saying he wanted to change and then saying, Stephen, to be a better American really cut right to me, Mm. because I, I really feel like there's a there is a, a war for the soul of this country that we have been waging since its founding. Um, are we going to be a country that where there is someone here on this planet with a tie to every community on the globe and we're living in such proximity that it's revealing our common humanity? Or are we going to be a place where it's just a dog-eat-dog war for for supremacy? That, that to me, is, is the battle. And when he said, I want to be a better American, I couldn't not respond at that level. And so I said, thank you. And I thanked him for admitting his prejudice and asking to change. And then I gave him some ideas just off the top of my head. I said, you know, first of all, the stereotypes that he had recited earlier in the call about sort of black men and drugs and gangs and Mm -hmm. crime, you know, are not the full or true picture of of black humanity. And so he needed to integrate his life and, and join institutions where he was in proximity with, you know, real black folks and and families. And um, I told him to read up on black history to understand, you know, how we got to where we are um, and to keep asking questions like this in his community and get involved in organizations that are that are working on these issues. And um, he uh, ended up taking my advice that that clip between us went went viral online. It's had some 20 million views Um, and he ended up taking my advice, and we ended up getting to know each other. And it's been years now, but we still talk regularly. And, wow. Um, uh, he's, you know, he's on a path. You know, it's not always a direct one. Um, a huge influence in his consciousness has been Fox News and right-wing radio. And you know, he he agrees with Donald Trump on some things and disagrees on other things. But as I got to know Gary and I saw his anguish um, at. The distance between who he was and the stories that were in his head and his ideals. Um, and I saw how socially anxious he was uh, around people of color and how sort of isolated he felt in his life, having so much fear. I realized, you know what, racism is costing him. It's costing him as yes. a white man. Yes. And it occurred to me that, you know, the folks selling racist ideas for their own profit. Right. These are the, um, you know, the people who are really profiting from hateful message about messages about our fellow Americans and our fellow human beings. You know, they're profiting from those messages, um, whether it's directly because they're companies and they're getting more eyeballs because people are fearful and, you know, sort of addicted to the outrageous story, or it's political parties that are profiting by gaining uh, political power even when they're – Ideas, their economic ideas about more tax cuts for the rich and, you know, making it harder for us to have clean air and water and, mm. you know, cutting funding for schools. Those are not popular ideas, even with white people, even with Republicans. But the, the glue is the story, the white story that we have to band together or else they are coming for you. They're coming for your children. They're coming for your jobs. I mean, that's the story and they're profiting from it. But Gary wasn't, you know, Um, And so it really made me realize that I had to, eventually what I ended up doing was was going on a journey for the past three years and writing a book about tallying up all the costs of racism, those to black and brown people, but also those to white people. Um, I looked at the ways that our our public infrastructure is so much poorer and uh, crumbling because we lost a consensus around the time of integration that it was important to have great public schools, great roads and bridges, to have public pools. I know there were some in Detroit that after integration, um, you know, no longer uh, existed. I I went to Montgomery, Alabama and stood on a large lawn that used to be a a huge resort pool for thousands of people that was uh, drained and then cemented over when an integration order came down in 1959. So I feel like in so many ways what's happened to our country since the civil rights movement has been that we've just drained the pool of public resources. We've stopped investing in our infrastructure. We've stopped investing in our future. We've we've really shifted to spending money on jails, prisons, and the military, which are just all expressions of that same sort of racial fear that stopped – You know, neighborhoods from being willing to share a public pool with
0: black children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Heather McGee about economic and social racism policy uh, in this country. We're going to hear more about that story from Montgomery, Alabama and the Oak Park pool. Uh, That was closed rather than see it be integrated Uh, we want to hear more from you as well what do you think about this moment of reckoning in america over race and racism and systemic inequality are we headed toward a better path or is this a demonstration that won't quite get us to where we need to be as americans 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones we'll be right back with more detroit today Visiting to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest this hour is Heather McGee. She is an American political commentator, a political strategist, and a distinguished senior fellow and former president of Demos, a nonprofit progressive U.S. think tank. Uh, we are talking about what racism costs us in this society, not just what it costs black and brown people, uh, but what it costs all Americans, the things that we don't have, the things that don't make our lives better because our system, our lives, our world in this country are so infected with systemic racism and inequality. Uh, We want to hear from you about uh, your experience with those things and hear your ideas for how we go forward From this moment, when we're seeing massive demonstrations to try to change all of that, what kind of changes would you like to see affected in American society? What kind of changes do you think would really make a difference, not just for black and brown people, but for all Americans? Uh, Again, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Before the break, Heather, you were starting to talk a little about uh, the research for your forthcoming book, and you've been looking back through history a lot, and in doing that, you found uh, this instance of racialized policy uh, making back in the 1950s that hurt everybody in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, Spend a little time talking about this story of Oak Park and the swimming pool and what happened there.
1: So in the 1930s and 40s, there was a nationwide building boom of public pools. There was this idea, this was before most people had air conditioning, um, and there was just this idea that, you know what, maybe towns and cities should be in the business of of providing something wonderful for their residents where everyone could come together and live a sort of american dream of luxury and relaxation and so across the country there were thousands and many of them were these huge beautiful resort pools that could hold thousands of real meeting places in sort of the heart of towns and cities and many of them were segregated, even though everybody's tax dollars paid for them. And I don't just mean they were segregated in the South in their Jim Crow. They were segregated um, in meaningfully and effectively in Detroit, St. Louis, yes. Chicago, Portland, Oregon. I mean, there was just this idea that black and white should not swim together. Um, it might lead to race mixing. It might lead uh, to you know people discovering their common humanity. Who knows? So uh, when black activists began and lawyers began to to sue to uh, create integrated uh, pools, many, 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 many dozens of cities and towns ended up closing their public pools rather than integrate them. And in Montgomery, Alabama, there was an entire parks department called the Oak Park um, parks the i 'm sorry, the Montgomery Park Department um, and the crown jewel of it was the Oak Park Pool, but they also had a zoo, they had recreation centers, parks all over the city, and as soon as they got an integration order. The town, the town council voted, and it was effective January 1st, 1959. They would close the entire Parks and Recreation Department for the entire city. Nobody would be able to use any public amenities, white, black, or anything in between. And um, that meant they padlocked the you know, Senior Citizen Center and the Recreation Center. They, they sold off the animals in the zoo, and they drained and closed the pool. And I went to visit that um, pool. and um, what I found was um, that, you know, the citizens really felt like they had lost something as well. And um, the white citizens felt like they had lost something as well. And I really do feel like that's what's happening in some ways across the country.
0: Yeah. Well, and they did. I mean, literally, they lost they lost a public amenity. Because of because of racism, you know that story reminds me of something that happened to me when I was about four years old here in Detroit. <clears throat> My mom was very close friends with a family who lived in Gross Point, um, and which is one of the wealthiest suburbs here in Southeast Michigan. and And in the 1970s, when I was a kid, was all white. Uh, it was not integrated, really, in any way. Um, and they had a public pool. Uh, in Gross Point Park, that is the envy, really, of of lots of communities. It is this really lovely spot, <clears throat> right down by the lake. Uh, and this family that was friends with my mom invited us out to go and uh, swim in the pool with uh, with them uh, one yeah. one weekend. Uh, and my sister and I and and my uh, mom's friends' kids all got into the pool uh, and started to have a good time. And within about 15 minutes, it was absolutely empty. Everybody else got out and left. Uh, Of course, I was four, so I thought, well, this is great. Like, uh, everyone's leaving. We get the pool to ourselves. And we were splashed around and having a good time. But it was the first time I remember after that, after we left, it was the first time I remember my mom explaining to me what racism was and mm. why those people left the pool, and that it was uh, part of uh, this, this thing that I would have to, to deal with for, for the rest of my life. And, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the idea that those people would not want to swim in the pool with me and my sister uh, and would rather leave uh, was, was just, I, I just remember being overwhelmed uh, to try to even understand that kind of thinking mm. that they were going to punish themselves uh, because we were black. But but as you point out, this mm-hmm. is this is a pattern in in American history.
1: Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> and thank you for sharing that story, Stephen. And what year was that?
0: This would have been 1974 or five. Yeah. So uh, I mean, about 45 so years recently. ago. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, you see that I, I was able to find evidence of that kind of sabotage, self-sabotage across the economy. Um, you know, I traveled down to Mississippi to look at uh, a union vote that had failed. Um, now, this is something that your listeners, you know, may may be quite familiar with. Um, you know, so much of the downward pressure on Detroit automaker wages has been because the American South has never been unionized. Um, And the reason why the American South has never been unionized is that the elite in the South was able to paint um, the very idea of collective bargaining as a communist idea that would lead inevitably to race mixing. These ideas about equality on the job, meaning upending the racial structure of Jim Crow it made it impossible for the UAW and others to unionize, um, you know, big industry in the South because white workers would not go for it if it meant they would give up the the racial order. And so you had Operation Dixie um, fail in the middle of the century after the after World War II, and then you had, you know, and you can see this throughout the economy. You basically had. Domestic outsourcing to the South where wages have constantly been lower. I like to say, you know, they started at zero in slavery and have, you know, nudged up to 725, but, you know, that's, it's still, you know, abject poverty. Um, And so, you know, I went down to a Nissan plant that was doing um, uh, an organizing drive and failed and talked to. White and black workers who both, both for and against it, said, yeah, I mean, it was a racial issue in the plant. Mm. It was, you know, the blacks are for it, so white folks aren't voting for it. Um, even though it would have given them something closer to the kind of job security, health care, and pensions that, that uh, you know, the big three have had historically in Detroit, um, the Nissan vote failed and race had a ton to do with it. Yeah. Um, so you see across the economy, I tell story after story of places where racism as a as a as a way to organize one's thinking about the world and 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 who's on your team and who's on the other team ultimately has economic consequences that affect us all. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of listeners who want to participate in this uh, conversation. Uh, let's start with Terrence in Detroit. Terrence, welcome to the yeah, show. Yeah. Good morning. Hey, how are you? Uh, all right, I've lived here all my life. I mean, I was born in Black Bottom. I'm 69.
2: I'm a veteran. I worked for the Detroit Police Department. Coleman Young gave me my first job. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Steve, I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. When was the first time you were stopped by the police, and that's when you knew you were a black man? Every black man in America, mm-hmm. that's when you know you black and you know you something's wrong. Everyone. Yeah. And there's no Walmart in Detroit.
0: No, there isn't. Uh, Terrence, I mean, I was 16, of course, <laughs> when when that happened the first time. And, uh, of course, my mom had prepared me for the moment and, you know, had talked to me about what to do and how to respond uh, mm-hmm. but but I will probably never forget the, the way my heart was racing and, and the way the hair on the back of my neck was standing Mine out, too uh, out of fear I mean it, yes, sir uh, these are these are experiences that that have been true and common for black people in this country since since the beginning right um, yes
2: sir yeah. and I'm 69 and I came around in the 50s you came around the 70s. And it's still hit and today, ask it. Ask it, Do you have any sixteen-year-old kids? Yeah. The boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My
0: son is sixteen, and he's just ask started. Him when rise. is the
2: first time he got stopped.
0: He hasn't been stopped yet, but he has well, been prepared. It's <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, Terrence, I really appreciate the call. Uh, Thank you, sir. And the comments, um, uh, you know, Heather, uh, the, the, Terrence's call reminds me again that these are these are such old problems, and they are so ingrained. In all of our in all of our lives. And in Terrence's voice, I hear this skepticism that things can change, not that they won't, just that they can't. As he says, he's 69. Uh, What do you say to people about, again, the potential for this moment to to change things that haven't changed for people like Terrence?
1: A really important question, and I, I, I personally, as an advocate for, for social change, you know, vacillate between hope and and fear uh, on a near daily basis. But, but you know, Black people have always had hope. We've always had to, right? to come from where you know. I'll just speak for myself. My ancestors came from. My great grandmother um, was alive, you know, much into my adulthood, and and I heard her story, of the way that she grew up, the way she bought um, the apartment building where I was born on contract, which meant that if she missed even one payment or was late by a day, they could take the land from her. Wow. Um, and yet she persevered on a on a domestic worker's salary. I mean, I. You know these are the stories that give us hope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and resilience and see for her to see you know what has happened to uh, her great grandchildren what we've been able to accomplish that you know that's that's an embedded part right Obama Jesse jackson right it, you you know we talk about hope literally we talk about hope it is our political glue that said, what we have to recognize is right when the civil rights movement tore down those formal barriers to us being able to even glimpse the American dream is when, in another room, the power elite began to organize to take that American dream away from everybody. So you had, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, the ability to get a good job that gave you health care and retirement benefits, um, and that Was stripped away Mm -hmm. beginning in the 1970s and 80s. And so we were let into a drained pool, right? We were let into an an America, into the full, you know, equality, the formal equality in America where it was not legal anymore to explicitly discriminate against us. But then they changed the economic rules. Mm -hmm. And so now it's nearly impossible to get a good job with health care benefits and a retirement pension and job security, uh, unless you have a graduate degree. And even then, you've got people with graduate degrees fighting to get $15 an hour to teach classes at the university. Right. I mean, this is this. what has happened is that the racial rules were changed, but then the economic rules came in right after them to be changed in a way that made it worse for everyone and and the reason why i'm optimistic is that i have studied enough to know that the economy is not the weather Mm. and what has happened to create the largest per capita prison population in the world in the united states um in this militarization of police you know that didn't happen naturally that didn't happen because you know people just started thinking differently about crime it was a concerted campaign Um, from, you know, a narrow political elite, and it will happen because we change the laws. Mm -hmm. And so we can change those laws in ways that reflect our values. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's a fight. It's a political fight. It means we have to, you know, out-organize, out-vote all the time. We have to have candidates at every level of office that uphold our values, and I don't care what party or color they are, they need to, you know, stand up for working people, and they need to be folks who come from our communities and have our communities at heart, interests at heart, and are willing to say no to corruption and to stand up against big money. And that's that's a fight, but at least we know, the, we know that we can wage that fight. Yeah. Um, and it's not just sort of a natural, inevitable Thing, that we will have this level of inequality in america
0: okay we're going to take another quick break and when we come back we are going to continue our conversation with heather mcgee we'll also get to more of your calls daniel and Jean in detroit lola and dearborn we'll hear from you as well if you want to join them 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone we'll be right back with more detroit today This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Heather McGee, a political commentator, political strategist, and distinguished senior fellow and former president of Demos, a nonprofit progressive U.S. think tank. We're talking about inequality and racism in America, how it affects our economic and social structures, and what the potential is for change. Of Those structures, especially right now, as we see lots and lots of demonstrations each night in America uh, about police brutality against African-Americans and systemic racism. We want to hear from you about how you think things could change, whether you think they might change and what those changes are might look like uh, to make your life better or to make America better. Uh, As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and leave comments, and we'll work you into the conversation. Naeem on Twitter says the book Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy captures the psychological and emotional costs of America failing to ever heal from slavery. The symptoms can be connected to our country's treatment of Native Americans and ongoing system of racism as well. Naeem, thank you very much for that comment. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Uh,
2: Good morning, Stephen. Hey, Gene. Uh, I agree with your guest about uh, the Republican Party, but ever since the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1877, both parties have bought into institutional racism that benefits uh, nothing but the rich. And you can see that right down into today Mm -hmm. of the policies that we have in this city of the tax increment finance areas, the economic growth corporations, the land banks that give uh, tax incentives and tax breaks to the rich at the expense of all of us. uh, Go on and and without any questioning by the uh, liberal democratic elite, who continue to support these edifices, at, while at the same time giving lip service to ending racism, hmm. and mm-hmm. so far that
0: hasn't changed. Gene, uh, Gene, I really appreciate your your call as always, and and your great knowledge of history, of course. Uh, uh, but but, Heather McGree respond to that—the idea that Democrats in many instances are mouthing the same things and supporting the same kinds of policies that prop up institutional racism.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we do not have um, a reflective democracy, first of all. Let's be very clear that um, when it comes to being able to really play the game of politics, it takes money. And so you either have money or you know people, that have money, or you're willing to say things that people with money like, mm-hmm. and so that narrows not just who can run and hold office, but it also narrows who they're listening to, and it narrows what ideas are on the table. And so, ideas that are going to disrupt the economic status quo um, are ones that are already always going to be uh, have to be forced onto the table. Mm-hmm. We are just now beginning to see, uh, for example, in Washington, the most diverse Congress in terms of race, gender, uh, and and ethnicity that we've ever had be elected in 2018. We are just beginning to get anywhere near any kind of reflective democracy. And that took massive historic turnout from uh, the American people to, to get us there. So absolutely, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, um, you know, what knights them is their class position. Um, the Democratic Party is much more racially and gender diverse now because really the Republican Party has become so much, uh, as one, one strategist once said, a white man's party in, in name, in all but name. That said, there are movements across the country to change the Democratic party from without and within, mm-hmm. um, whether it's uh, the working families party, justice Democrats, our revolution um, there are a lot of local groups that are traditionally just been grassroots organizing groups that you know knock on doors and and get people out to to vote and to hearings about issues like affordable housing and education that are now starting to get into politics and saying, hey, why don't we run our grassroots members? Why don't we endorse candidates? So there's a lot of grassroots energy to change the Democratic Party to make it, um, you know, more progressive and to put ideas like a universal basic income if corporations are not going to pay people enough Um, or guarantee any kind of job security, Um, put ideas like fundamentally defunding the police so that we can invest in our communities. Because we know that the communities that are safest are not the ones with the most police. They're the ones with the most resources. And so why not spend the $200 billion a year that we spend on policing in jails, um, on education, on uh, community centers on, you know, economic security for our families, on housing. Because so often the problems come back to housing, whether it's, you know, poisoned housing or lack of affordable housing that gets you into a spiral where um, you're not able to take care of your family, where there's too much economic stress at home. Um, and then for right now, what needs to happen is Congress needs to pass um, the the second coronavirus uh, pandemic economic recovery. bill. Um, You know, it's passed the the House to extend all the the unemployment, the extra unemployment benefits and and all of the other things that the foreclosure and eviction moratorium and Mitch McConnell is sitting on it when we're still at a Great Depression level of, of economic freefall and are going to be again, even, you know, particularly in communities of color.
0: Yeah, uh, I I I, I want to before we go back to callers, and we're going to run out of time. Of course, uh, we always do. Um, th- this idea that that m- white America has as much to gain from mm. the fight for equality for black and brown people as anybody else is is at the crux of all of those things you just talked about, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, white Americans are suffering just as much as African-Americans from, from coronavirus' economic uh, I- impacts, right? I mean, it's affecting African-Americans way more from a health perspective, but but the economy is in terrible shape for everyone. And yet the fear that black people or brown people might get something they quote unquote don't deserve is what holds us mm-hmm. back from helping everyone. And And, and it just That's seems right. like and- we can't overcome that in this country.
1: I think you can. You just have to talk about it in that way. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's why, um, you know, I've written this book that is available for pre-order online wherever you get books and in bookstores. Um, I recommend Bookshop, which, you know, helps support independent booksellers. Mm -hmm. But um, it's called The Sum of Us. Um, but that's available for pre order now, but people can see for free my TED talk, which is called Racism Has a Cost for Everyone, because I think it's this zero sum idea that has been sold uh, for centuries in America, that my progress has to come at your expense and that I'd rather see you down than know that I can come up because I think those two things are related. That's what's got to end. It's Mm -hmm. just not true. It's sapping the economic engine of our country. It's making us morally um, know that something deep is wrong. We know the majority of Americans know that there is something very sick at the core of the country right now. And Trump, in many ways, is just an expression of it. Um, but we have got to get on the same team. The challenges we face from climate change to inequality um, to you know mass refugees of people to pandemics, they're going to need us to stand together and be in solidarity with one another. And that's what the coronavirus has invited us into, is that feeling of solidarity, of doing things for one another and having each other's backs. And we've got to keep that going. That is our superpower. It is the only thing that's going to make America the country that um, can live up to its ideals. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Let's quickly go to Daniel in Detroit. Daniel, I've only got about a minute left, but I wanted to squeak you in here. Go ahead.
3: Thank you for having me on the show. Really Mm -hmm. quick, I think there's been a lot of talk about um, what's happening in the black community with you know, the racism and everything, and let's get to the root of why. Let's keep the black community out of the face of police. Let's focus on education and work ethic and health, because if you don't have education, we need to get the parents involved in education. You know, it's been said that 50 percent of the people in the city of Detroit, don't have a high school diploma. How right. are they going to educate their 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 kids? Sure. And if they can't educate their kids, how are their kids going to succeed? So yeah. we need we need we need K through twelve help, and we need it now. Yeah. We Daniel. need a mentor, a counselor. Yeah, Daniel. We need to keep people out of jail. We need to keep them out <laughs> of the face of the police. We need to we need to work on anti crime, and we need to work yeah. on education.
0: Daniel, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but we are running out of time. So, uh, but but I do appreciate the call and the sentiments, Heather McGee. Uh, it was really really great uh, to have you here with us for this conversation. I'm I'm really happy that uh, that you joined us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, that's gonna do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Come back tomorrow when we are going to talk about the education budget and where students stand with returning to school in the fall with two education policy experts. We'll talk again tomorrow.